psalm. Our sorning is Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Before I get going, I did want to say that sanctification is possible. I arrived this morning, and I was going to open with a joke. It was actually a good, really good joke. I was going to point out that John Lawler had only been ordained a few hours before Chuck already needed a vacation. Um, But then I felt conviction, so I won't make that joke. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, not but, sorry, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself uh, to, be, to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you um, as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks um, for the words of Paul here. May they actually bear fruit in us. May they make us not like those fleshly infants, those who are seeking their own delights, but mature people. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is one of the more interesting passages of the Bible. In fact, I'm surprised Chuck gave it up, but uh, this is how it fell. This is one of the things that preachers love to preach because it's a classic misdirection. You see, this passage is one of the most cited passages, at least in modern evangelicalism, in the modern Protestant world. Yet, ironically, it's one of the passages that is the most wrongly cited, out of context, and strangely enough, when people cite it, they often mean it contradicting what Paul is saying in these very words. It's one of those misdirects that happens, and it's not as if Paul is being unclear here, Rather, it speaks to what you might call the first Corinthian problem. What Paul is saying here is very obvious. If you, don't, you don't need much other than to have read the first chapter to know exactly what he's saying here. But as it tends to happen, these verses get lifted up out of their context. What do I mean? Well, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he just took a job not that long ago, and he's working at a, a faith-based nonprofit. He's not working at a church yet. Uh, He feels called to serve there. And while he's working there, he meets all kinds of folks from a broad array of different denominational backgrounds. One of them is from a more spirit-filled background, you might say, uh, more of a charismatic bent. And he finds it a a fun, unique relationship because he's himself not from that background. But he's immediately noticed that this person in their interactions, when it comes to things about the Bible or about walking with Christ and these things, the person shields themselves from anything. In one such case, this person came and told my friend that they felt like the Lord had put it on their heart to demand, not ask, by the way, demand that this, my friend, come with him on a spiritual retreat being led by his church that weekend. 
It was sort of a thus saith the Lord kind of moment. And my, my friend felt a little strange about that because he said, that, I don't understand, I'm getting married this weekend. <laughs> I think the Lord planned that first. So maybe we got our signals crossed here. Uh, and there was this sense, and, he's, and I was just asking about it, and he said, well, the reality is, is this person constantly quotes from this passage, that they have the mind of Christ, that they have a, a spiritual insight, they get these, these deep wisdoms from God, and therefore they almost speak, as it were, for God. And he says, I know they don't mean that arrogantly, but it comes off wildly arrogant on occasion. Another case. My friend, who's a pastor in town, pastors around a large church, uh, a lot of different backgrounds of folks, and, and he was just in my office this past week talking about the challenges that he has with what he calls Facebook prophets. Yes, I can guess by your rumblings that you know a few of these people. Um, uh, the people on Facebook who either have um, these kind of prophecies or maybe they have uh, their opinion ways, outweighs everybody else's opinion. They write these, these huge gargantuan messages that they think everyone reads and no one really is, um, that kind of a thing. It got so bad in his church, in fact, that he had to actually preach a sermon against it. And sure enough, right after it, someone came up to him with a passage like this. And they said, well, what about the, the, the secret wisdom that we get from God? What about the message that we get? Don't we have some of us given this type of spiritual insight? There's this whole talk about the spiritual people getting spiritual things, and can't I be one of these people? Okay, if you don't have either of those two contexts going on in your life, there is an application that is far more familiar to most denominations, which is the haughty person. The person who, for whatever reason, has set themselves up as with a certain level of sophistication. Maybe it's education, maybe it's a certain stature, maybe it's uh, they feel as if uh, they've reached a certain phase in life that they need to tell every generation younger than them exactly how they ought to be at every second of every day. Maybe it could be any number of things. It could be all these things and more, but what happens is, is that actually is the same thing that what Paul is talking about here, though a bit different. You see, what Paul's going on about here is not super spiritual stuff. It's not something that sets the Christian apart from the visitor to church. Believe it or not, all that language of the spiritual people and the mysteries of God that are being revealed that we have is common, ordinary, plain-spun, everyday wisdom. From God, from the scriptures, you don't need an education to know this per se, and you don't need to be a guru mystic. Now the problem is, is that when we say spiritual and all these kinds of things, we live after the New Age movement came on the scene, so those things have been hijacked. But what did Paul just finish going through in the first chapter? All of these gurus, all of these better-thans, all of these haughty people who are setting themselves up as the ones that you have to come to. For some, it appears that they felt like the rhetoric of Apollos, the way he could spin a phrase and all these types of things made him better than Paul. Poor Apollos in a way, because his name has always been synonymous with this faction that's kind of developed around him. But nonetheless, they think we need really, really educated, sophisticated, high-polished preaching. That's what wisdom is. 
And what Paul has done, and there's other factions as well, but what Paul's done in chapter one is say, that's crazy. It's not the quality of our speech. It's not the ability to spin good, ver good words and make it sound so intellectual that makes it meaningful. And as you'll see as you go through the rest of 1 Corinthians, there are other problems like this as well, the super spiritual, the guru types. Not unlike, frankly, our age today with the new age stuff and the way people feel like they have these spiritual premonitions that set them apart and make them prophets or whatever it might be. And Paul has just completely undermined all of that in chapter one. In fact, he even says, I am nothing. So when he gets to this part and he starts talking about a wisdom that's being imparted, he's not talking about something that he has that is actually his faction that's leading him this way. Because he's just said all that stuff is, is nuts. It's, don't do that. And what Paul is then saying is, is that there is a spiritual fervor, a spiritual presence, a walking with Christ that by the standards of the world around them might seem very plain and very ordinary and not sophisticated enough to reach the level of the people in chapter one. And Paul is, in, in essence, glorying in that plain, ordinary, rejected style. So let me put it this way. Chapter one says don't make factions, don't set yourself up against people. So what he's doing here in this chapter is not setting up his own faction against them. Rather, what he's saying is, is if you're a spiritual person, if you're a mature person, then there is an insight that you have as you walk with Christ day by day that is just simply, and I'm going to use this word very carefully, it's just intuitive. It's just ordinary, common, everyday ways of understanding things. But it, well, what Paul is saying is what the world sees as ordinary and not very sophisticated and not educated enough and not with a spiritual insight is itself the wisdom of Christ, the way they carry themselves with humility. They're proud of the message, not the quality of the way they deliver the message or the way that they've polished their own speech and these types of things. In his book, Blink, uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about something that I think would work as an analogy on this. If you've read that book, it's, it's kind of interesting, actually. The, the point of the book is, as the name suggests, how in a blink of an eye, people who are trained, people who have insight into things, intuitively, immediately, without words, get something's wrong. And the opening story in the book is, is of an art critic, or a, a curator of a museum, and there is a statue, a large statue of marble rolled in that's supposed to be from antiquity. And they unbox it and they pull the, the, the packaging stuff off, and there it stands ready to be sort of dressed up, cleaned up before it goes out for display. And it talks about the head of the museum just standing there, looking at this statue, and he can't figure out what's wrong. There's something, you might say, hitting him in the gut, and he's standing there saying, something's off. I, I, and they say he stood there for quite some time, and he can't put his finger on it. You've probably experienced something like this before in your past. You're like, something's off here. I don't know what's wrong. Something's off. And as he starts to think about it and explore it and apply the things that he has learned over the years, he then puts his finger on what the problem is. And I forget what it is. I don't think the book even quite tells you. But it points out that it's a complete forgery, the statue. But it was such a good forgery, it very nearly convinced even the experts on it. 
until someone who was the lead, leader of the museum stood there and said, wait, I can't tell you what's wrong yet, but there's something off. There is something not quite right. When Paul is going through this language of the spiritual people, he says these, uh, verse 10, he says these things, uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything. And he's talking about how the Spirit is the one who knows the mind of God, meaning if one has the Spirit, they are learning things about God. And then verse 14, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. That's the key. They're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, again, you have to contrast that against chapter 1. There are a lot of people who say they are spiritually discerning, and Paul has just said, actually, the only one who gives this is the Spirit of God himself. Therefore, those who have the Spirit of God can smell bad fish when they see it, or when, they, when it's in front of them, put it that way, spiritually speaking. What I mean is, is in your day-to-day, -day, every life, everyday life, these types of things are bound to happen. Whether you have Facebook profit friends, whether it's somebody in your workplace, or a cousin, or a family member, when you get that sense that something is just off, a person is spouting on about their new view of this and how they have uh, read this one book that's convinced them of this deep insight and, oh, you've got to read this book. No one's reading this book except for me, by the way. It's only this book. It's a great book. You're going, you're, going, you're just going, I can't say what's wrong right now, but there's that sense that something's off. And you can't quite put your finger on it. And what Paul is saying here is that ordinary walking with Christ doesn't fall prey to that type of guruism because they have the Spirit. In other words, when you come across the gurus of our life, those who have these insights, I don't know about you, but in every case that I've seen this, whether in print, uh, online, or in person, there is a rabid anxiety with the people that are in question here. There's almost this, this fervor that, that something's missing, and they've got to find it, and maybe it's this book, and maybe it's this philosophy, and maybe if I accept this or follow this speaker online. There's a sense of a lack of calm, and I've always sort of wondered, why aren't you resting in Christ? Why, did, what, why does that book mean more to you because you just read it last week? And seemingly that that's the thing that's giving you your assurance for the week uh, until it fades, and then you've got to go find another book or something. What Paul is saying here is there's an ordinary stability in the Christian life that doesn't actually chase the fads, the new books, and it doesn't get shaken when some new insight guru person is coming along saying, this is what you have to follow. They're not tempted by that. Because they have the mind of Christ, they're actually driven to everyday, what I, what I call homespun biblical wisdom. They want to know the Bible and live it plainly. They want to walk with Christ and not chase these fads. How ironic, then, that this passage is so very often used to defend the opposite. The person who thinks that they are the prophet says, no, I have this spiritual insight, this wisdom, therefore I have the words. And the answer to that is, that's not what that passage means. In fact, ironically, you're back in chapter 1 saying, I follow pa Apollos, or I follow this person. You're factionizing yourself. How about we just read the Bible and live it? How about we come about the ordinary life and follow it? How about we come to church and love each other, even though it's hard, and not try to break up into the better-thans and the people that are not quite there? 
if you chase those fads, even, in, uh, even if you don't follow the most extreme versions of it, but if you find yourself anxious, that's the problem fundamentally with what's going on here in 1 Corinthians. They're anxious. They feel like something's missing. They feel like they need to add something. They feel like they need to find something. They feel like there's something that's not quite there. And what Paul has just said is, if you have spiritual insight, if you have the basic framework of the scriptural understanding of salvation and the kingdom of God, you have actually one of the deepest mysteries possible. And all these other mystery type things are just false versions of what we're talking about. Because what God has done in Christ coming and rescuing us on the cross, rising from the dead, is the deepest mystery possible. But to the world, they think it's nuts. That's why they crucified him. Then you get on to chapter 3. And Paul there starts to actually do something which is not normally done. Paul does it occasionally. But he starts to actually um, hold them up to a higher standard than they think that they're holding themselves up to. And it's very striking, because again, in chapter one, clearly the folks in question are those who have already positioned themselves on pedestals. And Paul here has just called them kids. He's just called them childish. He's just said that you are on milk and you haven't even moved on to graham crackers yet. Uh, you're not even on solid food. In that sense, what he's saying is, is ironically, by putting yourself up by having this haughtiness, this pride, that what you've done is you've actually made yourself merely a foolish child, not, not a childlike faith in the sense that Christ is talking about, but a different kind of childishness. They think that they're on the solid food. They think they've progressed even further. They've leveled up in their Christian life. And what Paul is saying is, uh, strangely enough, what's going on is the opposite. What's at play here, though, is not Content, that's the big thing to get here. I used to read this passage and think that the difference between milk and meat was how many books you read. That you have milk because you know the basics of the gospel and you get to meat because, well, now I've read this book and that book and I've gone on to certain levels of things. Let me just go ahead and tell you, education is not sanctification. They never will be the same thing. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. Um, I have too many educated degrees and all these like things. It doesn't translate into necessarily a changed life. And so the difference between milk and meat is not transitioning from fool to smart person. Because what Paul says here is those who are foolish children on milk are doing what? They're jealous. They have that anxiety. The factionalism the inward heart that says, oh, they're okay, but they're new Christians. Just wait. I'll give them Calvin's Institutes next summer. Um, it's fine. You know, the, maybe they'll read it, that kind of a thing. Um, but that what's going on, these people are very sophisticated. And by the way, I'm not opposed to a deep theology. In these, I do teach it for a living, obviously. A, there is a place for this. But the danger here is the jealousy that Paul talks about. The sense of, I lack something, therefore I have to try hard to get to this point, then I'll be on the meat. And again, one of those ironic places, Paul is actually saying it's the opposite. That what you're doing when you chase that sense of jealousy, they have something I don't, I need to get better. That when you chase that, 
What ends up happening is the jealousy completely squeezes out the value of what you're chasing. So that you can even chase a good thing in a way with jealousy that ends up leading to this factionalism and this challenge within your heart that Paul is talking about. Let's just go ahead and apply it today. It's Mother's Day. There are, it is very, very hard for people who are mothers not to judge themselves over against all the mothers around them. We can do the men and different other things. They do the same thing, by the way. But today's Mother's Day. So we'll do that on Father's Day. But today's Mother's Day, every mother has this challenge, at least a whisper in their ear, something that goes, and they really seem put together. My, my kid's like just that doesn't match, and there's food all over their face, and the hair's sticking up in six different directions, and I'm tired, and I was kind of rude in the car to my kids, and oh, I didn't call my mother on Mother's Day, and it's already almost noon, and can I, can I sneak out like I'm going to the bathroom and call my mom, let me see. And you get this whole, you get that, that soundtrack in your mind. What is that? That's jealousy, believe it or not. It's jealousy that usually masks this idea of depression, this idea that I'm, I need to try harder, there's something wrong with me. And it masks that. And it's strange because that jealousy is based on if you actually knew the other person's life, they're probably looking at you going, but she's got it together, I wish I was like her now, this whole thing. It's the ironic circle where no, no one feels comfortable and there's always these challenges. Even if that's not your burden as a mother, that happens, those whispers happen. That's an example of what that jealousy is. I need something. I'm missing something. I'm not good enough. I, all those things start to build up. When those jealousies build into us, when they start to speak into us and become part of our DNA, what Paul is saying here is that is what pushes you into immaturity. He calls it, a, a, in the same set of verses, fleshliness, being part of the flesh, not spirit. Now, flesh here doesn't mean your body, it doesn't mean your libido, it doesn't mean your appetites. He's not talking about the, 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 the stuff of my body. Fleshly, in this sense, is the one who cares about oneself in a sinful, prideful way over against the things of God, thinking less of yourself and, and serving others, that kind of a thing. So when Paul says, is believe it or not, solid food, maturity, is seeking the things of God and thinking less of the pride and the jealousy and the things that corrupt those things. So that what he's saying here is, yes, it's vital to think about how to be a good parent. Yes, it's vital to think, how can I be a good child? Call your moms, folks, don't forget. Uh, how can I be a good child? How can, I do, how can I do these things? How can I learn more about, about the faith? All those things are wonderful. But when it's built into a structure that you see here in 1 Corinthians, what ends up happening is it destroys, it divides, it makes us immature. Therefore, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? We talk a lot about wisdom uh, in my world because we always have a problem of students coming to school, and they're going to be pastors, and they think that the goal there is to become smart. And what I always end up saying is, folks, don't be smart, be wise. Because if you've ever been around a person that you legitimately know is wise, there's usually a th couple of characteristics about them that stand out. One, they are relatively smart, at least in terms of biblical knowledge. They know their Bibles. They can recall things. They've spent time in it. It's just this, this appetite of their life that they know the scriptures over time. They don't master it. In fact, they'll never tell you they've mastered it. But there's always this deep sense with a wise person, a wise man or woman, that they just have this calm, everyday, ordinary walk with Christ that takes them to the scriptures. 
The other thing about a wise person is they're usually the last person to call themselves wise. There's something about humility. They see themselves as just an ordinary, plain Christian. They're just walking with Christ. They're, they want to know the Bible and live it. And everyone suddenly keeps coming to them and says, can I ask you a question? I have advice. I need help. And younger generations start to seek her and the, or him, and they start to ask questions. And the wise person is going, why are you asking me stuff? I don't know. And there's this sense of humility. You ever been around someone like this? I've known several people like this. They are legitimately not faking humility. They don't think of themselves very much. They just want to have an ordinary biblical faith, an everyday faith, not a super spiritual Facebook prophet kind of faith, an ordinary, everyday kind of faith. And if you've been around somebody who's wise like that, what you find is you actually really enjoy being around them because they can actually help you so very much because they don't have that anxiety. They don't have the factionalism or the jealousy or of, oh, don't read them, they're not very good. Here, here, I have my private collection of books. Here you go, read those books, this whole thing. Or you need to listen to this podcast, it's great. What's a podcast? I don't know. Well, it's a pod, it's this thing, and download it. I mean, I've heard all these strategies, none of them work. You know what works? Ordinary, everyday, biblical faith. As you rise, as you slumber, as you walk day by day, as you wrestle those kids into their clothes, as you deal with kids who don't call you on Mother's Day, whatever it might be in your life, as you go through the day by day, that's ordinary, plain, every common spiritual faith, what Paul is saying here. It's not considered very nice by the world's standards. It's not polished and dressed up. It doesn't have lots of things that the world considers to be valid or validating. But according to God, that is the cross. Because what the cross tells you is you didn't earn this, Christ came for you. Therefore, your worth is in making yourself humble, making yourself low, not considering yourself to be the guru. You're not on the cross, Jesus is. So the ordinary everyday, plain, biblical faith has this rootedness, this sense of stability, this sense of calm that the world doesn't care about, but it is what the cross brings, a sense that my Lord has saved me, therefore I don't have to achieve all these worldly standards to, in order to be saved. I don't have to use them as uh, the accomplishments that give me assurance. So how can you walk with Christ? Every day, ordinary. As my mom used to tell me when I was younger, you need a God who can be with you when you're washing your socks. Not just the one who's there on the re retreat weekend. So is God with you day by day? Yes, and the more you accentuate that, the more you realize that there is an ordinary, everyday faith that is itself the mystery of the spiritual realm revealed from the cross than all these other factions and other achievements and all these things that get held up as the spiritualism of our day become very thin and very frail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the way your word can correct us, it can challenge us. The way that we might seek after these things, some of these things can be very attractive because they're very attractive to the world around us and we like to be liked, but Lord, let us know that our assurance is in you, that you don't consider these things to be wise, that you want us day by day to just simply walk, to be your children. 
And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.